Bye-bye, Hedwig. Your 5,000 candles in the wind. You're listening to The Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club for eulogists. Don't you want to take a last look at the place? He asked Hedwig, who was still sulking with her head under her wing. We'll never be here again. Don't you want to remember all the good times? I mean, look at this doormat. What memories. Dudley puked on it after I saved him from the Dementors. And under here, Hedwig, is where I used to sleep. You never knew me then. Blimey, it's small. I'd forgotten. I'm Heather Price Wright. And I'm Alex Dallenberg. I really appreciate the Parks and Recreation reference there. Hey, nope, it's another service I provide. This is delightful. And bye-bye little Sebastian and Hedwig. Jesus Christ, this is going to be sad. This week we are reading the chapters in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows called The Dursleys Departing and The Seven Potters. So we are really back in it right away. On this podcast, you will hear spoilers for this, the final installment in the Harry Potter cycle, and you will hear a lot of cursing. We will curse the man or men who murdered our beloved Hedwig. We all know who's responsible for murdering Hedwig. Who? J.K. Rowling. Yeah, well, we curse her too a little bit. But, you know, she did what she had to do plot-wise, I suppose. She didn't didn't have to do this, but we'll get into this. (laughs) You will also hear some adult themes. This week's adult themes are real estate fraud, awkward goodbyes, blowing your cover, unsafe at any speed, and pet cemetery. Oh. Sorry. You didn't have to do that either. I mean, we have to talk about what we have to talk about. It's here. Get over it. We just have, we have to face it, as Hagrid says. Well, Alex, speaking of which, what happened this week? In... He said through tears. (laughs) In this week's chapters, Vernon summons Harry from his bedroom. The Dursleys are about to take off to be placed under the protection of the Order of the Phoenix. Well, they're supposed to take off, but Vernon's not so sure that he wants to anymore because he thinks it might be a ruse for Harry to get the house. Vernon has decided that the whole... Voldemort coming back and trying to take over everything is just a clever plot by Harry to switch the deeds to number four Privet Drive to his name. So that's an unforeseen complication. Uh, Harry patiently explains that once the charm protecting Harry wears off, Lobo is for sure going to target the house and probably kidnap and torture and or kill probably both the Dursleys in order to get information about Harry Potter or hold them hostage as bait, hoping that Harry will come and try to rescue them. Which Harry is clearly very unsure whether he would do. As is Vernon. Yeah. And and they have this kind of interesting moment where their eyes meet and they're both obviously wondering that. Vernon hilariously asks why they have to go with the Order of the Phoenix. Isn't there a Ministry of Magic, and don't they qualify for government protection as innocents? Harry explains the Ministry has probably been infiltrated, uh, which would render their protection worthless. Vernon then insists that they get Kingsley Shacklebolt to protect them, because 
Even the Dursleys stand Kingsley Shacklebolt. <laughs> uh, Harry then has to patiently explain that Kingsley is protecting the Muggle Prime Minister, who is now Tony Blair, swept into office in May of 1997. Probably because the Dementors were causing all the voters to uh, be sad and vote the Conservatives out. But anyway, so... New Muggle Prime Minister. That's not in the book. Just in case anybody forgot whether the election of Tony Blair is in this book, it's not. But this is taking place in July of 1997. So. I, I mean, you're totally right. I'm yeah. just saying that that's not a plot point in Harry Potter. Also, the Chicago Bulls are on just a hell of a run. Just knocked off the Utah Jazz in the NBA Finals. Did you look this up? I, I knew that. Really? This is the this is like Jordan's like six title run in the middle. All this is happening while Harry Potter is undergoing his own life and death struggles, and never once does someone say, "Oh, the Bulls are having a hell of a run." In these <laughs> uh, that is stolen from Twitter. That's a joke on Twitter. But it's a good one. I think it's a valid point. Uh, <laughs> although you know the Brits not really into basketball. Although basketball at this point it's starting to become a global game. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, I lost my place in the summary, thinking about the NBA. Um, anyway, instead of being protected by Kingsley Shacklebolt, the Dursleys will be guarded by Hestia Jones and Daedalus Diggle, who we might remember as the little dude who bowed to Harry uh, in book one, before Harry even knew that he was a wizard. So, bringing it full circle, Harry explains once again that all the fucking dark shit happening in the country is because of Lovo's rise, all the accidents and disappearances and fog. The fog in particular is caused by the spread of Dementors. This alarms Dudley who says there are more Dementors than uh, just the two who attacked me. Dudley then says that he'll be definitely going with the Order of the Phoenix, which settles it, because the Dursleys won't be parted from uh, their dear Diddykins. So Harry goes to his room to pack. He's feeling sort of awkward, like, what do you say to the people you lived with for 16 years who also hated you? Hedwig is really annoyed because she hasn't been able to fly. Harry says, don't worry, soon we'll be out of here and you'll be able to fly your heart's content. Don't say that to me right now. That's an that was an act of violence saying that to me. <laughs> and rabbits. Dude, There'll fuck be you. So many rabbits no, where you're going. No, stop it. <laughs> fuck this. No. To appease Hedwig, he gives her some owl nuts. I don't know what owl nuts are, but uh hopefully they were damn delicious. She didn't eat them. She was too grumpy. Oh my gosh. She didn't even get a last meal. It's too early to be crying about Hedwig. We have a whole episode to get through. Should we just stop here? Yeah. We're just going to put this episode up. We're going to stop it here. This is the end of the podcast. Hedwig's Hedwig dead. Podcast. Goodbye. Yeah. This was actually a Hedwig podcast. We can go no further. Well, we haven't got there quite yet. So let's forge on. Somehow, somehow we're going to get through this. How are we going to get through this when it's Fred? I don't know. I can't talk about that yet. Jesus Christ. <laughs> anyway... Daedalus Diggle and Hestia Jones show up. Daedalus is wearing a mauve top hat, so looking pretty fresh. Daedalus Diggle explains the plan. They'll be driving away to somewhere else and then disapparating. Uh, I love imagining the Dursleys disapparating anywhere. 
Dudley yeah. for sure gets splinched, or Vernon. One of them is splinched in this scenario, and it's very bad for them. Yeah, that's our fan fiction. Just them getting splinched. <laughs> they deserve it. And then put back together again. Yeah, they don't just, deserve you know, to die. More Dursley body horror. <laughs> um, Hestia suggests that they give Harry and the Dursleys a moment alone to say their goodbyes. Harry says there's no need. Vernon almost shakes Harry's hand, but then doesn't, because he's just a dick. But then just as everybody's about to leave, Dudley doesn't. He just stays seated and asks if Harry is coming too. Vernon says, of course not, he's going uh, somewhere else, who knows. Hestia then butts in and says, you don't know where your nephew's going? You don't even seem to care? Uh, Harry says, don't worry about it. The Dursleys have always thought I was a waste of space. Dudley then interjects and says, I don't think you're a waste of space. Aww. You saved my life. Diddykins. Petunia then bursts into tears. Hestia is still very unimpressed. Petunia is sobbing and saying, oh, you're so nice, Dudley, saying thank you. Hestia points out that Dudley didn't even say thank you, and don't you know who Harry Potter is? You're related to him. Harry then realizes that the cup of tea he stepped on in the last chapter probably wasn't a booby trap set by Dudley. Dudley was probably leaving it as a present. So... There's a moment of reconciliation. Harry shakes hands with Dudley. He says, take care, Big D. As they're leaving, Petunia turns to face Harry. She almost says something, but then doesn't. She just says, well, goodbye. So the Dursleys have departed. Alone in the house, Harry reminisces about his life there, about the only good memories he has are when the Dursleys would go out to like dinner or whatever and leave him at home and he could play on the computer probably like Microsoft Flight Simulator or something. Oh, the Oregon Trail! They probably didn't have that in Britain. That's not very British. No. <laughs> I don't I don't know what the Brits would have had. Number munchers? Who knows? Uh, who, what the fuck is number munchers? You never munchers? played number munchers? Hell no. I'm just a little bit older than you. You're just enough older than me that you know what something called number munchers is. On the old is. Mac computers no, with never. the big green screens like the apple 2 or whatever no it was this game where not it's like a math game where i forget i don't think there's a frame story but numbers got munched <laughs> i'm trying to remember what happens to the number munchers frogger maybe harry was playing frogger i never Do you played know frogger? that either i mean i okay. vaguely You're know frogger. frogger i vaguely know frogger but i never played it well harry was not playing the oregon trail uh presumably i don't this might be too early for flight simulator this is like i am completely lost you. I don't know. I anyway. was following you as you were talking about the NBA, but now I've completely lost you. Anyway, Harry would sneak into Dudley's room to play the computer. Uh, maybe Doom. Maybe he was playing Doom. Alex. I'm trying to think of... I can't situate this... Oh, I don't have the timeline right on the video games, but anyway, Harry had some very good memories about surreptitiously playing computer games and watching the television, but that's about it. He visits his old cupboard. He thinks to himself, geez, this is really small. It's super fucked up that I lived here. Then he hears people arriving in the yard and bangs his head on the cupboard door. Uh, it's the advance guard. I don't... That The advance guard is what they were called in... Order of the Phoenix. Order of the Phoenix. I don't know if that's their name this time. There's some kind of guard. It's the Order of the Phoenix. They're there to pick up Harry. There are 13 people there. The roster is Ron, Hermione, Fred, George, Bill, Mr. Weasley, Mad-Eye, Tonks, Lupin, Fleur Delacour, Kingsley Shacklebolt, and Hagrid, and Mundungus Fletcher. I don't know why they brought Mundungus, but what... <laughs> 
<laughs> they always do this. I don't know why Mundungus is of any use to them is anymore. Is he just in some kind of like diversion program? Like, is this like... <laughs> Mad-Eye is his sponsor? Yeah, like, that's why. <laughs> is this like a convict rehabilitation like thing? <laughs> that, is the Order of the Phoenix like getting community tax credits? Service. For, uh, yeah, he's been sentenced to community service. What is this? I don't know. Uh... Anyway, Mundungus is there, and he's not super happy about it, probably because they're about to get ambushed by a gazillion Death Eaters, but whatever. Anyway, Tonks flashes Harry a ring, because uh, she just got married to Remus Lupin. Harry's super excited for her. Mad-Eye then says, all right, enough of the chit-chat. No more jibber-jabber. He explains the plan. Basically, Pious Thickness, who is gone over to the dark side we know because he's been imperious uh the head of the department of magical law enforcement has made it impossible to connect number four privet drive to the flu network or place a port key there or apparate in and out all ostensibly in the name of protecting harry potter but actually to corner harry for a death eater ambush when the charm protecting him breaks on his 17th birthday so they're gonna leave early hoping to catch the death eaters unaware and the only safe way to travel is by flying so in true jk rowling fashion they have multiple mode they have brought multiple modes of transportation with them they've got brooms they've got thestrals and they've got but 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 hagrid slash sirius's motherfucking motorbike only Arthur Weasley has pimp my ride style, like outfitted it with all kinds of like buttons that do, like that deploy like awesome weapons. The plan is they're all gonna go to different safe houses, disguising themselves as but 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 motherfucking Harry Potter. They're there's gonna be from here on out just lots of but 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 motherfuckings because it gets really exciting. Mad Eye uncorks a big old flask of polyjuice potion uh and then demands harry forks over some hair uh six of them turn into harry potter harry feels slightly abashed as he watches everyone strip out of their clothes and change into more harry like garb everybody pairs off with a non-harry guardian and harry pairs off with hagrid and gets into the sidecar of the motorbike Almost as soon as the Order takes off, they are ambushed by 30-some-odd Death Eaters. In the initial confusion of the attack, Harry's luggage falls out of the sidecar. He loses his firebolt. He just manages to grab Hedwig the Owl's cage, but a stray killing curse hits Hedwig, and with a screech, she falls to the bottom of her cage. Looking like a useless stuffed animal is the description. Um, yeah. And then how do we go on uh, from there? And that's the end of the Quibbler podcast. Goodbye Thanks, forever. Amigos. No, just kidding. All right, yeah, I guess we should go on somehow. Uh, <laughs> Harry screams at Hagrid to go back, but he says it's his job to get him to safety. Harry, meanwhile, is like sending curses out the back of the motorbike. There's this whole fucking like Indiana Jones style chase scene. Hagrid hits a green button on the bike, which sends a brick wall shooting out of the exhaust pipe, which then suspends in midair and like takes out a Death Eater. The Death Eater should have 
drawn a door on it like the Roadrunner or something. <laughs> <laughs> it does have a very Looney Tunes quality when the shit flies out of the motorbike. I'm just like, when Arthur and Hagrid are turning the motorbike into this fucking like chitty chitty bang bang like assault vehicle, are they saying to themselves, okay, let's make this like deadly, but also as whimsical as possible? <laughs> Anyway, Hagrid also hits a purple button that sends a stream of dragon fire from the exhaust pipe, and that causes them to, like, accelerate super fast, but that also rips the sidecar free because it had been kind of, like, hanging by a thread. Hagrid tries to repair it using his magical umbrella, but instead he completely blasts it off. Harry manages to catch himself in midair using Wingardium Leviosa, but he's kind of stuck there helplessly in the sky. Uh, so he's sending more curses at the Death Eaters. Hagrid flies back on the motorbike and scoops Harry up out of the sidecar. In order to slow the Death Eaters down, Harry then aims a curse at the sidecar, blowing it up along with Hedwig, which is like, I mean, wow. Just way to rub it in, <laughs> JK Rowling. By the light of one of Harry's stunning spells, he sees the strangely blank face of but 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 motherfucking Stan Shunpike is one of the Death Eaters. Harry then uses Expelliarmus against him. A Death Eater shouts, that's him, that's the one. Then the Death Eaters fall back. Harry wonders how they knew it was him. Hagrid guns it using the dragon fire, but Harry then feels his scar burning horribly. Two more killing curses miss him by just millimeters. Then Harry sees him. But 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 ba motherfucking Lord Voldemort. Voldemort is He's fucking flying? He's not even on a broom. He's just, uh, he's flying like, quote, smoke on the wind, unquote. The bike is careening out of control. Harry fully expects it to die. A hooded figure raises a wand at them. Hagrid then leaps off his bike onto this other Death Eater on a broom. They start hurtling toward Earth because the wand, because the broom can't support Hagrid's weight. Harry hears Voldemort scream, MINE! Harry hears the killing curse, his eyes are shut from the pain, and he feels his wand arm act on instinct, sending golden fire toward Lovo, who screams, "No!" Harry then punches the dragon fire button one more time, he's hurtling straight toward the ground on the motorbike, he screams, Asio Hagrid! I didn't realize that worked on people, too. Does it work? I don't think it works. I, I Hagrid is yeah, already on the work. earth. Yeah, anyway. Behind him, he hears Voldemort begging a Death Eater named Selwyn to give him his wand. He then sees, or feels rather, Lovo bearing down on him, but then suddenly Lovo vanishes. Harry looks down. He sees Hagrid spread out on the ground. He tries to avoid hitting them and then smashes the motorbike into a muddy pond. And that's what happens in this week's chapters. So that was, that was exciting, horrifying. I got so excited in my retelling of that, that I... Punched the computer. Punched the computer. I knocked it off. I almost knocked it off the desk. Uh, we'll be editing that part out. Yeah, you guys won't hear the crash when Alex actually punches his computer. I tend to flail toward the end of these summaries. Yeah, it gets exciting. Yeah. Each and every time. I know. Okay, so number one, fuck this chapter. <laughs> it's so awful. I know. It's so upsetting. We are also given to believe that Hagrid is dead, which, spoiler alert, he is not, but you spend some time thinking he is, so... Dude, that guy's a tank. I know. Hagrid can take anything. So let's back up a little bit. 
and talk about these Dursleys because this is the last we're gonna see them. It's this book is weird because it's this like farewell tour. So last encounter with Vernon, Petunia, and Dudley Dursley. What do we think? Fucking Vernon is the worst. According to you, Vernon Dursley said now, resuming his pacing up and down the living room, we, Petunia, Dudley, and I, are in danger from, from some of my lot, right? Said Harry. Well, I don't believe it, repeated Uncle Vernon, coming to a halt in front of Harry again. I was awake half the night thinking it all over, and I believe it's a plot to get the house. The house? repeated Harry. What house? This house, shrieked Uncle Vernon, the vein in his forehead starting to pulse. Our house! House prices are skyrocketing around here. You want us out of the way, and then you're going to do a bit of hocus-pocus, and before we know it, the deeds will be in your name, and... Are you out of your mind? demanded Harry. A plot to get this house? Are you actually as stupid as you look? He's a bad person. started as the worst. He remains the worst. Vernon and Voldemort, they share kind of a lot in common. Say more. They have these just reactionary minds. Okay, this whole Harry Potter plot to steal his house that Vernon has kind of come up with in his fever dreams is is a really good example of the reactionary mind. Because Vernon simultaneously thinks that Harry and all wizards are these shiftless, worthless layabouts that don't work, don't even fucking know how to drive, that are not equal to muggles in any way, but they are simultaneously, like, incompetent and worthless, but also these Machiavellian schemesters that control everything. So it's like, which one is it? It has a fair amount in common with rhetoric around, I would say, the Western world about immigrants, the simultaneous kind of lazy, mooching, draining the system, but also these criminal masterminds that have devised a way to undercut the power of these Western nations through their evil genius. And it's kind of one of those things where it's like, yeah, like, which is it? Yeah. Are wizards useless layabouts or are they criminal masterminds? And because I mean, it's really hard to be both of those things. Or, or, you know, you saw it with, like, attacks on Obama, who's supposed to be this feckless, pretty boy, do-nothing, but at the same time also, like, the second coming of Stalin or whatever. Uh, I mean, the point's not that it makes sense. The point is to... Undermine them undermine in, in every possible any, direction. Yeah, you know, so... But <laughs> Vernon is interesting because it's just true belief. Like, this isn't Vernon designing rhetoric in order to convince a group of people that wizards are bad. This is Vernon having this bifurcated mind in his own body about wizards, which is really interesting. And Lovo is really similar about Muggleborns. Because later in the book, and he's alluded to this already in the first chapter, uh, the Death Eaters invent this whole mythology around Muggleborn stealing magical ability from actual wizards, even though it's like, it's not based in any kind of reality. But they also think that Muggleborns are incapable of magic. So right. it's this thing, yeah, it's the same thing where it's this sort of dual consciousness 
of mm-hmm. what a wizard slash what a muggleborn is and can do. So yeah, there's so Lovo and and Vernon in a lot of ways, uh, they have like similar patterns of thinking. Voldemort obviously is more intelligent and has like broader designs, but it's a really similar way of thinking, and it's fucked up that Harry had to grow up with that. Yeah, the other thing about Vernon is he is so small-minded. This hilarious thing where he thinks that Harry is trying to steal his boring-ass suburban house (laughs) to, like, I guess live in by himself despite the fact that he's a wizard and has other shit going on. It's really funny, but it's also just so... Vernon is just pathetic to the very end. I mean, he just... He's so unimaginative and so obsessed with his own sad, small, kind of like creature comfort life that Harry is battling the forces of evil with all his might. And Vernon is like, oh, the deeds to my house. And Harry, it's, Harry's very funny in that moment. He's like, no, they're going to murder you. Like, this is real. You're going to get for sure murdered if you stay here. I can't even believe we're talking about the yeah. fucking house right now. But he's also weirdly, he's got the weirdly parochial attitude that Harry must just want whatever Vernon has. He so can't empathize with other people that he's sure that at the end of the day, Harry wants nothing more than to be Vernon Dursley and to like possess all Vernon's things. And I think Lovo is similar in that regard. Similar kind of lack of imagination and able to like understand how other people think. So in summary, Vernon Dursley, if he'd been born a wizard, for sure would have been a Death Eater. Oh, and 100%. just like not even thought about it. Yeah, you know, just that kind of grasping, wanting to hang on to power, power, privilege, even like just whatever tiny empire that you've built. Yeah, and this is like the smallest little fortress that he has. But he's the king of his castle. Yeah. So Vernon is the least redeemed of the Dursleys. Yes. By which we mean 0% redemption if we're doing percentages. Let's talk a little bit about Dudley who has, I would say, the farthest of a redemption arc in this chapter. Don't these people realize what you've been through? What danger you are in? The unique position you hold in the hearts of the anti-Voldemort movement? Uh, no, they don't, said Harry. They think I'm a waste of space, actually, but I'm used to. I don't think you're a waste of space. If Harry had not seen Dudley's lips move, he might not have believed it. As it was, he stared at Dudley for several seconds before accepting that it must have been his cousin who had spoken. For one thing, Dudley had turned red. Harry was embarrassed and astonished himself. Well, uh, thanks, Dudley. Again, Dudley appeared to grapple with thoughts too unwieldy for expression before mumbling, You saved my life. Not really, said Harry. It was your soul the Dementor would have taken. He looked curiously at his cousin. They had had virtually no contact during this summer or last, as Harry had come back to Privet Drive so briefly and kept to his room so much. It now dawned on Harry, however, that the cup of cold tea on which he had trodden that morning might not have been a booby trap at all. Dudley, first of all, I feel such empathy for Dudley, who has been, we've talked about this before, 
so totally warped by his parents' worldview that there was just no way he could grow up to be functional almost. The fact that Dudley gets anywhere close to feeling warmth and sympathy toward Harry Potter is honestly a testament to Dudley's development of like a soul totally on his own. He's not getting this from anywhere except within. So even though Dudley kind of does the bare minimum here, which is acknowledge Harry's humanity and hope that he doesn't die and thank him sort of for making sure Dudley didn't die in a particularly dangerous moment. I actually think that's a big step for Dudley Dursley. I feel like there's no forces in his life contributing to that other than some internal force of moral good. He comes to this completely on his own, which is hard. People don't really emerge from these ideologies intact all that often. It's a really sad moment because you see... It suggests to me that Dudley has all along had this longing for connection. He doesn't have a brother, and his his parents lavish this affection on him that's very... <sighs> it's distant. It's not uh, yeah. knowing him. It's... it's uh, and it's very materialistic affection. Yeah, it's ve- it, and it just it wasn't a nourishing kind yeah. of of love. And you know his friendships seem rather surface level and shallow and based around kind of intimidation and threats and all that. In the way that you know bullies tend to struggle forming really deep connections. It's not entirely Dudley's fault, as I think we've discussed before, because it would have been really dangerous for him to try to cultivate a relationship with Harry. He would have felt the wrath of both of his parents. Which he has never experienced before, so that feels like a really perilous position. Yeah. But this moment does gesture in a really heartbreaking way at the possibility of companionship for both of them. Right. And you have this moment of a real opportunity lost, and an opportunity lost forever as they sort of walk out the door. And you realize there was this world in which Harry had an ally in the house. And it's really sad to imagine all the ways his life would have been different if Dudley had gotten there sooner and had taken the kinds of moral risks it would have entailed to ally himself with Harry, or at least to be remotely kind to Harry. Yeah, they were both prisoners. Right. Of the same mentality in different ways, but with equally warping. If anything, Dudley is way more warped than Harry. Oh, yeah. I think so. Because Harry has other access in other parts of his life to people who form strong and healthy family bonds and demonstrate love in a way that is nourishing. So, And Dudley has none of that. Oh, wait, well, Harry got nowhere. rescued. Dudley did not. Yeah, I mean, Harry also has, like, trauma Dudley doesn't have. So I think it's, like, they kind of balance out. Like, Harry also has the murder of his parents to contend with. I mean, Harry got the worst of it, clearly. He was the one who was neglected, who didn't have his, like, nutritional needs met. Right. But Dudley did not have his emotional needs met. And it's interesting because you think about spoiled children as having everything they need. But the main thing children need other than sort of the basic necessities of being alive, is healthy love. And Dudley doesn't ever get that. No. So I feel sad about Dudley. And I think we learn like on Twitter from JK or some shit that they sort of stay in touch, which isn't fucking canon because Twitter. But (laughs) I like to believe that. That sits nicely in me to think about. Yeah. At least Harry's not walking away from this house... With, with nothing. Absolutely nothing. 
and having formed no lasting connection for 16 years, that would be really sad. Yeah. It is already almost that and very, very sad. But it is nice that we can grasp at some version of a life in which Harry doesn't lose the only blood relations he has left completely. Because Harry is beloved by a community, but also pretty fundamentally alone in the world. Mm -hmm. Which is one of the main themes of this book. Like Harry's basic aloneness, despite the fact that lots of people love him, is a kind of key tenet of Deathly Hallows. And I feel like we get our first gestures at it here where... He's losing his only family, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. This is, It's a really, it's not a bittersweet chapter. There's not much sweet about it. It's mostly bitter. There is a lot of pathos here. Yeah. So what do we think about Petunia? <sighs> Petunia. Aunt Petunia, whose face had been buried in her handkerchief, looked around at the sound. She did not seem to have expected to find herself alone with Harry. Hastily stowing her wet handkerchief into her pocket, she said, Well, goodbye, and marched toward the door without looking at him. Goodbye, said Harry. She stopped and looked back. For a moment, Harry had the strangest feeling that she wanted to say something to him. She gave him an odd, tremulous look and seemed to teeter on the edge of speech, but then, with a little jerk of her head, she bustled out of the room after her husband and son. She almost has a Dudley moment. You can tell she sort of wants to say something. Well, she puts all her, the emotion she's feeling as usual, she funnels it into Dudley. So whatever tears she has, she has this whole scene where she's weeping over Dudley's like kindness uh, and kind of, yeah, I think... Hmm. Any emotion she has is channeled there in this scene. Yeah, I th- she sort of uses that as an outlet because I think to recognize Harry in that moment would have been saying, it would have been an admission that her whole life had been lived wrongly and a lie. And I just don't think she doesn't have like the force of character to do that. Yeah, I mean, saying anything to Harry Potter would be saying I've been a bad person for two decades. And yeah, she's just not in a moment in her life where she can recognize that. No. So and, and she, yeah, she, she's she's sort of a prisoner also of her own really horrible choices. Um, but also a prisoner of a overbearing and deeply cruel partner. Yes. Vernon gives no one in his family the choice to show compassion. No. There's just no room in the Dursley family for anyone to gesture toward Harry with anything other than cruelty and disdain. I, Petunia did seek him out for those qualities? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's... She, Petunia yeah. and Vernon have a ton in common, but I think Vernon is sort of the top of the pyramid in yeah. terms of the ways in which the Dursleys are cruel. yeah. But also Petunia might have mostly sought out Vernon because he had a stable job. And I mean, for the reasons that lots of yeah, I mean, I think women of past generations sought out ill-suited husbands because they needed to be supported. We can't, yeah, we can't discount that uh, in our assessment of Petunia. I think she still falls well short of... Oh, completely. I a, mean, she's a mess kind of, in this chapter. Yeah any measure of uh redemption but uh i mean i think the best you can say for petunia 
Maybe the best defense you could make is that Harry landing on her doorstep does endanger her and her family and has for the last 17 years. Yeah, I want to give them that modicum of credit. Harry Potter kind of ruins their lives. And that's not an excuse by any stretch of the imagination to abuse a child. But they are not given a ton of choice in the matter of raising this child who is a marked man. Yeah, by wizard Hitler. So they have to give up their jobs and their home and everything about their lives and go into hiding because of Harry. And that's not Harry's fault, but it's not fair to their family. Right. It's not what you would wish on anyone sometimes unfair things happen though and you have to like stand up and meet the challenge though and yeah. they just really don't no i know they, they don't really don't rise but to the occasion if you're the dursleys you have a fair argument to make that this kid ruined their lives at this point about the first 16 years i know but they've always been barreling toward this I moment the when specter... harry potter would sort of when Harry Potter becoming the most important person in the wizarding world once again would mean that their lives were in danger. I mean, they're in mortal danger. Yeah, the, spe- the specter of Voldemort is always over them. Do you think that if in some alternate universe Voldemort did kidnap the Dursleys, Harry would go after them? I do. I think so, too. I do believe that. Harry truly does not want people dying on his behalf. That's why he expelliarmus to Stan Shunpike, which is so fucking stupid (laughs) actually i read ahead a little bit and lupin gives him an earful for that but um harry doesn't want people to die for him even people he doesn't like very much right so harry's a harry's an upstanding dude in that way and then we have this scene where harry is doing kind of a tour of the house after the dursleys have left which is also a very poignant kind of lovely little scene yeah when he sort of sees what he came from and remembers what his life has been like in this home. And it feels distant. It, it almost feels like it was somebody else Yeah, and- that he's remembering because so much has changed. But I, I think this gets across really nicely the kind of, I don't know, the weird, the strange mixed, mixed emotions and pathos about leaving a place that has shaped you, even if it's been primarily the site of pain. Yeah. I mean, we can feel nostalgia. There's a, actually in a book I'm reading right now, there's reference to another book by Rebecca Solnit, which is about the creation of community in times of, like, right after disasters. And one of the things she talks about is people's feeling of nostalgia for times when they were in really deep pain, but also felt like something was happening. Yeah. And that they were sort of working towards something. And I feel like for Harry, it's not a feeling of building community, but a lot of the most important things that ever happened to him happened in this house. I mean, nostalgia for the discovery that he's a wizard seems like a pretty understandable reaction that he has. You know, he he sort of looks back on the time when that transformation was happening between being kind of nothing in the eyes of anyone and finding this whole new world with with some affection, even though it took place in this horrible environment. It's interesting to remember that Harry spent way more time at Privet Drive than he ever did at Hogwarts. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's true because he was eleven. So, mm-hmm. and then Summers. Exactly. So, the Dursleys' home is sort of his primary. I mean, it is his primary residence, and that's by design so that the charm stays on. But that's weird. This Polyjuice plot with the Seven Potters is, I think, actually pretty ingenious in terms of a diversionary tactic. It uh, it works pretty well. I mean, it would work a lot better if Snape hadn't betrayed them. He didn't betray them. Well. He's working from a larger design. Sorry, not, but it would have worked a lot better if Snape hadn't ratted them out. First of all, do you remember who Snape's source is? No, I don't. I'm racking my brains trying to remember how Snape knows this. And I don't know, whatever, I'm excited to find out. But I'm really annoyed that I can't remember who he is getting his information from. It's not Mundungus, is it? I, I, I truly don't God, remember. I don't remember at all. We're on a journey together to fill in the blanks in our memory. Yeah. Uh, this and six are the ones that I have read the fewest times. So I actually forget a lot of these plot points. Apologies. I promise we do read the chapters. <laughs> God. The real Harry thought that this might just be the most bizarre thing he had ever seen and he had seen some extremely odd things. He watched as his six doppelgangers rummaged in the sacks, pulling out sets of clothes, putting on glasses, stuffing their own things away. He felt like asking them to show a little more respect for his privacy as they all began stripping off with impunity, clearly much more at ease with displaying his body than they would have been with their own. I knew Ginny was lying about that tattoo, said Ron, looking down at his bare chest. Harry, your eyesight really is awful, said Hermione as she put on glasses. So on balance, I think it's a good plan. But a weird thing is that three adolescent friends, Harry, Ron, and Hermione, now have the thing in common of all having seen the dick of one of those adolescent friends. (laughs) It's a little weird that Hermione drinks Polyjuice Potion and then has Harry's dick. And Fleur as well. Yeah, but Fleur isn't his best friend, and Fleur just seems a little better. And Fred and George are going to come, they're going to have comments later. Yeah, they're, it's true. Well, all of the above, but these two best friends now had the experience of having had Harry Potter's genitals on their bodies. And just Ben and Harry Ben Harry Potter in general. Yes. I know yeah. I'm focusing on the uh, experience the of the dick. I was thinking when Hermione says, Oh, Harry, your eyesight's awful. Isn't it weirder if you're Hermione to all of a sudden have a penis? Yeah, but she's dignified enough not to comment on that part of the experience. I mean There is something about adolescence where curiosity about other people's bodies is sort of at its peak you know your hormones are raging you're more interested in the opposite sex or the same sex as like parts than you ever have been before and the experience of having those parts on your own body but belonging to your best friend and also just like you know there's that funny moment when ron looks down and says, I knew Ginny was lying about the hippogriff tattoo on your chest. And there's something so intimate about that, about Ron experiencing Harry's body, like, from within, that it's kind of uncomfortable. 
and kind of interesting. Harry is uncomfortable. As Harry's super strips, uncomfortable. As everyone he's like, strips naked. He has this funny line where he's like, clearly everybody is way more comfortable with people seeing my body than their own. Everybody's like stripping down to their skivvies to put Harry-sized robes on. And with the adults, I mean, it's weird in general, but I just find something about this little tight circle of adolescence all now knowing what their best friend looks like naked and feels like naked is fascinating, kind of. Isn't that kind of one of those things where, like, I don't know, I think that's one of my deepest curiosities. Like, what would it be like to, compl- to like, to inhabit, else? like, your body? Yeah. Like, not what is it like to understand your feelings and your sensations, but what would it like to own them for myself yeah so even Hermione being like Harry you have really bad eyesight Hermione having the opportunity to literally see out of Harry's eyes is kind of profound yeah no you're right so and I obviously we gloss over this because the purpose is purely for like defense but there's there are a couple of these little glimmers of like this is actually a really strange thing for these people to experience. For every, yeah, for every, it opens up all these possibilities that Rowling doesn't explore. It's interesting that the books themselves are so heteronormative when the ability to inhabit like another body is so non-heteronormative. Is is complete? Is like easily accessible and seen as very normal yeah you'd think people would try shit like this more often just because it's sort of if you're cisgendered for me i don't know maybe this is i'm not gonna say this is universal for me as a cisgendered woman it's virtually impossible for me to imagine inhabiting the body of a man i mean i think i can sort of like convey a certain amount of empathy for any body yeah but I can't imagine being a dude. And I think if I had the option, even coming from a cisgendered place, but a place of curiosity and empathy, like I would take that opportunity. Yeah. And I think if you were someone who was exploring your your gender identity in ways different from how I have explored my gender identity, yeah, there's just... J.K. Rowling creates all these sort of magical windows into various non-heteronormative experiences and possibilities and then, like, never utilizes them for that kind of questioning or exploration. Yeah, that would make it a very different book. Then then you'd be, we'd be, like, in the, I don't know, the left hand of darkness is, like, kind of an interesting exploration of this because it takes place... It's a book, this is a science fiction novel by Ursula K. Le Guin that takes place on a planet where people can morph seamlessly between uh, male and female. There's only one sex, but you can kind of become one or the other depending when it's time to uh, to mate. So you can have been a father and a mother, for example. Uh, yeah, obviously. You know, that, and that, that's would a book, make it, that would make it like a very different... That's a that book for a, adults. And yeah. I think this is less like, oh, what if there was a plot point about this? And more like J.K. Rowling's worldview, as we sort of know from her on Twitter and from some of the ways in which these books are structured, is fairly limited, especially when it comes to gender and sexuality. So it's weird that she has these little scenes of pretty fundamental 
fluidity. Yeah, yeah. She really, she flicks at this whole world of gender fluidity being easily accessible. But, of course, never actually, like, digs into that because she... I don't think because this is a book for children. I think there are, I think you can, you could explore this in a book for children, but J.K. Rowling honestly doesn't really have that much imagination, especially when it comes, I think, to kind of spectrum queer experiences, as evidenced by the fact that she has no queer characters. Right. And I, you know, I don't think this is a moment of like trans experience, obviously, but to create a world in which you can really, really, really easily experience a pretty broad gender spectrum from within your own body but there's no even remote exploration of like what that might mean for young people it's just i don't know her magic is very close-minded and very open-minded at the same time right and she provides all these options and then she sort of forecloses on the ways in which they might actually be interesting Right, because in this same scene, we see Tonks flash a wedding a ring. A fucking engagement ring. Why do wizards no, have... A, I think it's a wedding ring. Whatever, married, a yeah. ring. Mm-hmm. Wizards, like, you would think would have all their own traditions around this kind of thing. It's, I mean, even later on, we have this very conventional wedding. Yeah. Where you're like, don't you think wizards would have ceremony that was separate from muggles whatever we'll get to that in the wedding scene but it's fucking weird that tonks has a wedding ring they have this incredibly strictured normative society despite the fact that they're completely off the muggle grid yeah i i think i I'm, maybe it says that we got wizarding culture where they live in a world where you can pretty easily change your body change everything about yourself and they still are like they live well within a binary. Bound up within kind of, yeah. The, the most the Tonks of... does is change her hair color. Right. Like Tonks can transform anything about her body. Tonks would be a really interesting non-binary character. Mm-hmm. And all she does is fucking turn her hair pink. Like that's so married. boring. And get, married, and get to married to a man. A man. A werewolf man. Yeah. But still, a man. So I think, and you know, uh, obviously people in fan fiction can... Take these opportunities. Take these opportunities that Rowling has created and run with them in interesting, in interesting ways because they don't see themselves reflected in the text. Yeah, but from her own vantage, I don't know. Just the possibilities are artificially limited. I think in these books for the ways in which people express identity. Yeah, even though there are like ample sort of magical choices people could make to express different identities yeah anyway this is just a really interesting scene and it doesn't get it's like just glossed right over yeah if you stop to think about it it's quietly radical yeah or it could be but it's radical possibilities are not really explored it's radical possibility constrained by super normative plotting yeah wizards live in a world of radical possibilities and live pretty conventional lives the most non-normative thing about wizards is they wear robes and don't really know how to like match outfits. Kind of, they can't drive cars. But I don't. There are a, a lot of identities that would be expressed in really interesting and complicated ways within the magical realm that are just totally erased from these narratives. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think also a thing that you and I are doing right now in having this very interesting conversation is avoiding the crux of the matter this week 
and trying very, very hard not to burst into tears as we discuss. Oh, Hedwig. Screams, a blaze of green light on every side. Hagrid gave a yell and the motorbike rolled over. Harry lost any sense of where they were. Streetlights above him, yelled around him. He was clinging to the sidecar for dear life. Hedwig's cage, the firebolt, and his rucksack slipped from beneath his knees. No, Hedwig! The broomstick spun to earth, but he just managed to seize the strap of his rucksack and the top of the cage as the motorbike swung the right way up again. A second's relief, and then another burst of green light. The owl screeched and fell to the floor of the cage. No! No! The motorbike zoomed forward. Harry glimpsed hooded Death Eaters scattering as Hagrid blasted through their circle. Hedwig! Hedwig! But the owl lay motionless and pathetic as a toy on the floor of her cage. Oh, Hedwig. We actually got some beers out of the fridge during a cooling break because it's very hot in our apartment. Uh, So pour one out for Hedwig. Yeah. So just logistically, why can't Hedwig just fucking fly? Dude, should have let her out of the cage and said, hey, Let her out of the cage weeks ago. Send her to the burrow weeks ago. (laughs) He didn't know that this was going to happen to her. He did. Well, nobody knew that he was going to be leaving in a dangerous way. And Hedwig can fucking fly. Like, Yeah, Hedwig doesn't need to get into a fucking Hedwig motorbike. Hedwig doesn't need to be in a car. Hedwig can fly. Maybe they're worried about... Detection? Hed- Hedwig being followed? Because they watch the mail? Is Hedwig, like, weirdly a pseudo-ministry employee? Clearly owls fall under the jurisdiction of the ministry somehow, right? Is she, like, like postal tagged? System? Is she sort Yeah. <laughs> I mean, kind of, though. I don't know. Like, does she have, like, a magical microchip? I... I, I no, because then they wouldn't be bringing her at all, probably. That's true. So why would they bring her? I don't know. Hedwig could have flown. Hedwig could have met Harry at the burrow really easily. This didn't Harry... need to happen. And there is this whole thing where Harry's like, I can't let you out to hunt because, like, I don't know, some fucking irrational reason. Where it's like, you could have just said, go to the burrow, meet me there in two weeks. Everything's going to be fine. And Hedwig wouldn't have had to get fucking turned into an IED. Yeah. Oh, Hedwig has the most unceremonious death in all of these books. She just squawks and she's fucking done for. And then her corpse gets exploded. Ugh. It's a, that's like to... maybe badass, kind of. Maybe that's how Hedwig would have wanted to go. I don't know how Hedwig would have wanted to go. No, but we'll never know. I don't know, uh, not this way. One of the reasons this death is so wrenching, we're reminded of this especially because it happens just after Harry leaves Privet Drive, is that Hedwig was really Harry's first companion. Yeah, it's true. Hedwig was Harry's first constant presence that was friendly in his life. Right, because Hagrid was still kind of a adult figure. They hadn't kind of eased into that friendship yet. And Hedwig was with Harry every summer when he was very much alone. Yeah, Hedwig, it's true. Hedwig has been there's actually a, a lot constant. Of, there's a lot of really tender scenes between Harry and Hedwig during the private drive months. Hedwig is his therapy animal. Yeah. In a way that's real. I think having Hedwig be the first non-Charity Burbage, the first death of a character that we have any relationship with, is actually really canny because she's just turning the screws 
And it's this statement of like, I'm not fucking around. Yeah, she's like, this I'm is- fucking crazy. I'll kill anybody. I just turned Hedwig into an explosive device. You don't know what I'll do. And because it's like this gesture of like, it's only gonna get worse. Uh-huh. Like, buckle the fuck up because Hedwig is the beginning. Oh, this is this is the beginning of true bloodthirsty J.K. Rowling. So I guess we're gonna have to do this on episodes from now out. But body count two, technically, two, yeah. if we're including Charity, yeah. one beloved character. Two thousand, because Hedwig counts for one thousand nine hundred ninety-nine deaths <laughs> emotionally. I think I remember. When Deathly Hallows, like, right before it came out, it was a real open question whether she was going to kill Harry off in the final book or not, whether Harry, like, had to die. And, I mean, if you're reading this for the first time, you probably are thinking, holy shit, if she fucking killed off Hedwig in chapter four, anything could fucking happen. Yeah, there's nothing she won't do. this is cold-blooded. And, you know, the other thing that I think J.K. Rowling is really smart about is people are often sadder at animal deaths than person deaths. Just watch fucking Old Yeller and you'll know that it is sadder that Old Yeller died than if Timmy died of... Is it Timmy? What's his name? I don't know. Old Yeller's owner. No one knows the owner. It's, they just know Old Yeller. It would be sadder... It would. It is sadder that Old Yeller dies than if that fucking kid just got rabies and died. <laughs> it is. Straight up and down. That is a sadder movie because the dog dies than if the kid died. Yeah. I believe that with all my heart. It's sadder in real life, I think, if a kid dies. But in movies and books, pet deaths are brutal. Well, we can project all these... You can project all these things onto an animal that... Right. You... That a human would express for themselves. Yeah. I don't know. Uh... But J.K. Rowling, I mean, we've talked about this, like, way back in book one... I guess too. Anyway, we talked about this way back in the early books. Her portrayal of the relationship between humans and animals and of animal cognition and just the importance of animals in human life is really tender and nuanced and some of her best writing, I mm-hmm. think. It's I think lovely. She really gets the animal human connection. Yeah. Sometimes more than she gets human human connections. Definitely. The Hedwig Harry relationship. Crookshanks is really important. Uh, we dunk on Mrs. Norris a lot, but that's Filch's literal wife, so that's beautiful. I mean, they have a thing that's really special. I know, and... it's called marriage to a cat. <laughs> it's called the holy, the bonds of holy matrimony between man and cat wife. Yeah. She understands values and treats very seriously how the relationships between humans and animals can be very profound uh, and necessary in the lives especially of lonely humans Mm -hmm. animals provide connection to the natural world in a way like to animals sort of provide you with a like a situation in place and time because they're they're of the world yeah in this really kind of elemental way especially a bird i don't know something about a bird is so symbolic and basic in a way i don't know how to describe what i mean first of all they're fucking dinosaurs they're ancient there's just something profound about a bird maybe i'm saying this stupidly no no i think i mean hedwig's job is literally to carry the mail right besides being harry's like best pal she's a mail carrier so losing her here 
is cutting off Harry's main lifeline to the world. Which I think is actually really important thematically because, again, it goes back to the sense of, like, cutting Harry's strings. Right. Like, one of the things this book does is just isolate him. Until it's just him and... And Voldemort. And, like, literal death. Yeah, it's just him and death, like, chilling. Yeah. He loses his firebolt, too. Yeah, he loses a lot of the things that connect him to the world or make him feel like he has mobility and communication and he's just he's being made more and more alone yeah and losing Hedwig is a really striking way to make it clear that Harry will not have any of the comforts that he has had I mean Harry has had less and less comfort over the course of the last six books but now it's about to be just pretty bleak a beautiful thing is that Ron and Hermione never go away so he doesn't lose kind of the fundamental comforts of his life but Pretty much everything else gets carved away over the course of the next few chapters. One final thought about animals and their centrality to these books. You never really know when an animal is a person or not, or like the level of intelligence an animal has, and I think in an interesting way. Like, that rat might be a human. Definitely The cat might be McGonagall, you know, or something more. And the owls in this world are clearly imbued with an above average... uh, intelligence i think hedwig definitely has this internal life although i think the more we learn about animal cognition the more we learn that animals do have internal lives and that's Um, something that a pet owner knows instinctively and intuitively like the if you spend time with an animal that you care for it has a personality animals have ways of being in the world that are unique to them individually and hedwig hedwig has a big personality I'm so sad about Hedwig. Dude, I think it fucking sucks. This is one of the saddest ones. I mean, there's like three in this book that really get me. And I didn't actually cry at Hedwig, but it's coming. <laughs> like while I was reading. I shrieked. But it's the other I mean, just to reiterate, the other thing that this sets out is like, bitches, it's gonna get worse. Mornia to Lejonia, Hedwig. Good luck. So the last little thing I want to talk about is just the Death Eaters. Fuck these guys. Um, Voldemort can fly now. That's terrifying. Any happy little thought, I guess. He's thinking to himself. Uh, what is that Peter from? Pan. Oh. <laughs> any happy little thought. Um, I guess can, it's any evil little thought for Voldemort. Or yeah, whatever, is he just but... imagining his, like, kill list? And that's how he, like elevates himself or he also wants a pair of comfortable socks who knows i feel like we've discussed this in the past but i don't like so much the there's all these killing curses flying everywhere and that's how hedwig goes down i don't like turning the wands into just these machine guns basically where you can cast these killing curses just left and right I continue to really like Mad-Eye Moody's description, or I guess Barney Crouch, what the fuck, uh, in Goblet of Fire, where he says you have to mean it. It has to be cast with, like, intention, and it's really powerful magic. So the the idea that, like, these Death Eaters just spraying killing curses everywhere, I don't know. that Somehow that, like, takes away from the menace and mystery of Avada Kedavra, to me... It feels like it should be this very intentionally cast spell that's meant for, like, a single person, you know? So, 
I agreed with you on this the last time we talked about it. But this is why hashtag read another fucking book is mean but useful. I am reading this book called A Brief History of Seven Killings by Marlon James, which is about, I mean, it's about a really specific moment in Jamaican history, but basically it's about sort of political gang violence in Jamaica, like directly post-colonial Jamaica. It's wonderful. It's actually literally the most violent thing I've ever read in my entire life. It's fucking brutal. And one of the things that it's about is how violence can become so imbued into your culture that it stops feeling real. And the sort of surreality or unreality of violent acts makes them easy in a way that is sort of incomprehensible to the reader. So there's all these murders. I mean, this book is just piled with murders. It's shocking. Highly recommend, but it's shocking. And you just have these characters that start notching up bodies in a way that is so depersonalized that it makes me kind of understand how the Death Eaters could become so imbued in a culture of violence and so inured to the consequences of violence that the killing curse could become second nature and you would lose the need to mean it for someone particular because it would become so a part of your mode of operating in the world that you could just do it willy-nilly. Like there's all these scenes in A Brief History of Seven Killings when people get killed for nothing just because somebody is has a gun in their hands and like the sheer fact of holding a gun makes killing inevitable and I think for Death Eater culture the logical extension of holding a wand is murdering someone with it. So I just feel like this like honest to god this book has really this not Harry Potter but this Marlon James book has really changed my relationship to violence in literature because it's really 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 hard to read but it's also helped me understand that cultures can become so violent that violence becomes like a part of the very basic vernacular of living in that culture and I think that's what's happened to the Death Eaters. So saying Avada Kedavra is like it really becomes nothing and you mean it they mean it fundamentally the way you have to mean it without any personal real like animus because it's just it's in their it like becomes a part of their, the architecture of their thinking, really basically. I think that's a really interesting and profound way to look at this. And it might explain why the Order doesn't do that in retaliation. The Order doesn't use Avada Kedavra because the Order doesn't live inside of violence in the way that Avada Kedavra is easy for them. Like Avada Kedavra will never be a curse that Harry can really use because he's just not acculturated to violence in that way. But the Death Eaters eat, sleep, breathe, exist. I mean, they're literally, violent their rhetoric. name is Death Eaters. Death, death Eaters, yeah. Right, so they can perform death with ease and it doesn't have to be, personal animus is completely taken out of it Yeah. because it's just their way of being in the world. Guys, you have to fucking read every Marlon James book also. God, it's rough. Solid recommendation. Do any owls die in it? Not. Actually, some dogs have died so far. All right. (laughs) Yeah, dogs get shot a fair amount. He's the only. Actually, he's the second man I've read this year. But no white dudes yet. Anyway. God, I, I hate to like 
fucking talk about this because I don't like really know how to metabolize it yet but the idea of violence as just sort of a way of operating the world is pretty relevant this week yeah it's Sunday August 4th and there have been two mass shootings in the last like 32 hours so clearly this is a real thing in our world and clearly killing with total randomness and with a sort of large universal anger but without a ton of personal animus is a very basic part of the fabric of our culture. I don't know I don't know if we want to say without personal animus because Well, it's not one-on-one personal animus. Yeah. It's it's a larger hatred. It's not like I pick this human right. yeah. who I know and I understand and their their psyche is familiar to me and I want to kill them. It's it's cultural animus. Right. And it's hate and it's anger, but mass shooters aren't usually looking at one individual person and thinking, I want to end the life. I, I know the consciousness of this human and I want to end it. Right. It's bigger than that. Yeah. And I think the way that violence is woven into the fabric of whole cultures and ideologies is like more relevant this week than it should be. Ugh. I mean, I'm sorry to bring that up, but like that's what's top of mind. Yeah, it is. White nationalism also causes it. Dude, white nationalism is fucking Death Eaters. Yeah. I mean, that's not a one-to-one comparison. I hate, I hate to... Is that minimizing it? No, I don't know. The Death Eaters are murderers. Yeah. Whatever. Read another fucking book. Like, for sure. But a culture of hatred and violence is, yeah, by far the least, like, foreign thing in the Harry Potter books. Whew. Whatever, it's bleak out there. Yeah. It's hard to be a person. Yeah, it feels sometimes hard to make a Harry Potter podcast or like, why am I making a Harry Potter podcast when shit like this is happening? We're in a book that is brutally violent and isolating and hard. So at least we're in the right mood. Yeah, I suppose so. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, I 0% now. I have no idea how to continue to be a person in the world. But fuck all of this. And ugh. It's awful, but it's relevant. Okay, well, wild tonal swing. Sorry, but we also still have to do this thing. Ah, uh, who's your unsung hero? My unsung heroes are Daedalus Diggle and Hestia Jones for taking on a very thankless task of defending the Dursleys, and as far as I understand, they're quite su- they succeed in their mission. I don't um, think the Dursleys die. So. Also, great outfit, the mauve top hat. I yeah, Daedalus Diggle, I think, would be my best dressed of the Harry Potter series. Yeah, for sure. That's like a James Harden move. Oh my god, I imagine <laughs> him dressed like. <laughs> I imagine Daedalus Diggle is always dressed like he's going to NBA draft day. <laughs> a lot of NBA talk in this episode. I mean, it's always kind of something of you're mind. thinking about. Yeah. <laughs> My unsung hero is Dudley Dursley for reasons we've already talked about, but you know, he doesn't necessarily have to come out of this series with any redeeming qualities that he does, so Hats off to him. Rowling is really into the last minute redemption. She's also into the bare minimum redemption. And then like suddenly the person's good. He's I like don't know. a good guy yeah. in the grand scheme Like the of Malfoys things. get it. Snape gets it. I can't with the Malfoys. Yeah. Like fuck the Malfoys. <laughs> this, the Dudley one though I get because I do feel 
and maybe this is unfair because I don't feel this way about Draco, but I feel like Dudley is totally warped by his surroundings and conditioning. And overcoming those surroundings and conditioning in any small way is pretty impressive. Fair enough. This week's episode is brought to you by number four, Privet Drive. Now on the market, uh, ample cupboard space. <laughs> The audiobook clips that you heard are brought to you by Penguin Random House Audio. They are from Jim Dale's performance of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows by, of course, Ms. J.K. Rowling. You can find us on wherever you get podcasts, including Spotify now. We have like 45 plays on Spotify, so keep them coming. It's out there. It's really hard to find us on Spotify. But search and you will. If you just search The Quibbler... You'll get it. If you happen to listen on Apple Podcasts, we would love a rating, five stars, if you don't mind, and a review. Uh, We read all of them, even the mean ones. Don't leave a mean one. They're, like, pretty unpleasant. (laughs) (laughs) But whatever. Do what you have to do in the world. You can also subscribe there or wherever else you get podcasts. You can send us an e-owl. Saying e-owl is making me sad about Hedwig. Anyway. You can send us an e-owl at quibblerpodcast at gmail.com. And for the love of God, especially if you are interested in owls or Alex's very good jokes, sign up for the Quibbler newsletter, which is at tinyletter.com slash quibblerpodcast. It's pretty good, and we're going to try to do it more. Yep. So that's that's coming for you. You know, we're on social media as well. At Quilber Podcast, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We've been picking up the pace lately. Now you know, that we're getting back in the yeah, groove. We're back. Next time, we will be reading the chapters called Fallen Warrior. So, yeah, it's about to get worse. And The Ghoul in Pajamas. So, we'll talk to you then. Thanks, amigos. Back in his bedroom, Harry fiddled aimlessly with his rucksack then poked a couple of owl nuts through the bars of Hedwig's cage. They fell with dull thuds to the bottom, where she ignored them. We're leaving soon, really soon, Harry told her, and then you'll be able to fly again. Outside the apothecary, Hagrid checked Harry's list again. Just your one left, oh yeah. And I still haven't got your birthday present. Harry felt himself go red. You don't have to. I know I don't have to. Tell you what, I'll get your animal. Not a toad. Toads went out of fashion years ago. You'd be laughed at. And I don't like cats. They make me sneeze. I'll get your an owl. All the kids want owls. They're dead useful. Carry your mail and everything. Twenty minutes later, they left Ilop's Owl Emporium, which had been dark and full of rustling and flickering jewel-bright eyes. Harry now carried a large cage that held a beautiful snowy owl, fast asleep with her head under her wing. He couldn't stop stammering his thanks, sounding just like Professor Quirrell. Don't mention it, said Hagrid gruffly. Don't expect you've had a lot of presents from them Dursleys. Harry kept to his room with his new owl for company. He had decided to call her Hedwig, a name he had found in A History of Magic. His school books were very interesting. He lay on his bed reading late into the night. 
Hedwig swooping in and out of the open window as she pleased. It was lucky that Aunt Petunia didn't come in to vacuum anymore, because Hedwig kept bringing back dead mice. Every night before he went to sleep, Harry ticked off another day on a piece of paper he had pinned to the wall, counting down to September the 1st.